Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast on The Athletic presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman. With me as always is Prashant Iyer. Been a couple of Red Wings games since the last time we talked. One of them uh, a surprising 6-4 Red Wings win over the Tampa Bay Lightning and one of them a 2-1 unsurprising loss to the Carolina Hurricanes, two of the NHL's best teams, two of the Central Division's best teams. Uh, lately, those have been one and the same with the way that uh, those two in Florida have gone. So Prashant, uh, what are you looking for in this run of play that the Red Wings have against some really top competition? Um, and, you know, what are your kind of takeaways from from what you've seen so far? You know, t- one and two overall, but but uh, I think three points so far in these first three games. Yeah, I mean, we noted this uh, maybe last week that this March schedule is going to be really telling for the Wings as they basically go... And they went, they basically alternated between Carolina and Tampa, and they still have, you know, Dallas coming up. Uh, and so this is kind of a murderer's row stretch, if you will, getting, you know, both Carolina and Tampa have been outstanding in Dallas, uh, who is slowly finding their groove, but obviously uh, a the finalist last year. And so, you know, through the first three games, I mean, in the uh, being able to take Tampa to overtime in that first one going uh, 4-3 there and then coming back and actually scoring a season-high six goals uh, in the second game against Tampa, in a game that, you know, arguably they didn't really control play, but they just happened to get the breaks. I think, uh, I can't remember which Lightning player said it, but it was basically uh, saying they capitalized on every break they got. And that was the kind of game that I thought the Red Wings really had to play this entire season. And then, you know, coming back and while the score was uh, close in their game, first game there against Carolina, a 2-1 loss, uh, you know, Carolina did carry, I think, a majority of the play, but Really, the moral of the story, I think, for what you're looking for is, unlike last year, at least keep the score close. At least don't get blown out. Don't, you know, allow yourself to fall behind by three, four goals and and take those kinds of blowouts. And, you know, three games here and you've got a, a one goal loss in overtime, a two goal win and a one goal loss that, you know, came down the last few uh, that came down the last period. So overall, kind of an encouraging uh, sign, if you ask me. Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. I mean, the the, the win over the Lightning is a big assist to Curtis McElhenney, who I did not think was very good. I mean, the Red Wings had three goals very early in that one. Was it in the first period? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was 3-2 at the end of the first period because I remember this because I wasn't actually watching the game, but I was getting score updates on my phone, and it just kept going off in the first period. I was like, there, <laughs> there's something malfunctioning here. This is not a re- – I must have, like, set it for the Hurricanes game or something like that instead of the Red Wings one, and – Sure enough, it was 3-2 at the end of the first period. 
Yeah, not only have there been plenty of games this season where the Red Wings haven't scored three goals, there have been some games this season where both teams combined, the Red Wings and their opponent, have only scored or just barely scored three goals, uh, one of them against Carolina uh, the other night. So to see the Red Wings score three goals in one period uh, immediately will get your attention. But but I want to say it was like three on their first, I don't know if it was five I think it was first five shots because I saw a screen grab where the shots were 15 to five Tampa and Detroit had three goals. And so just (laughs) absolutely ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, just literally capitalizing on every chance, obviously not getting great goaltending from McElhaney, but still, that's what Detroit had to do. It's what they had to do, and and it's the kind of style that they have uh, leaned into all year long. I mean, it's 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 a real, and I I do respect it. You know, it's a real understanding of what you have and how you need to play, and I think the buy into it has you know on the whole been pretty good. They've gotten away from it a couple times, and um, you end up chasing the play, and that's kind of a byproduct of some of it. Um, but this is the kind of outcome you can sometimes get when when you play this way, and so. Um, it's not the only way to win a game in this league, but it's it seems to be the way that works the best for the Red Wings. Um, and so that's how that one kind of played out. I thought uh, Phillips Adina had a couple more assists, I think, in that game. Uh, that was a, an encouraging sign for him. Philip Peronik had a couple of assists. He became the Red Wings uh, points leader for the season in that game. Um, those are kind of the, the stats... Uh, not not the stats risers, but the the, the key kind of narrative elements is that Philip Zadina, um, that that capped a really strong run of play for him. Um, I didn't think he was quite as good against Carolina on Sunday night, at least on the puck. I mean, he had the wasn't maybe the most uh, careful game he's had with the puck, but that certainly did not just apply to him. That was a Red Wings, you know, endemic problem. Um, all night. And then Hironic, uh, I thought he made one of his better plays in the season in that Tampa game to set up Dylan Larkin. I don't know if you caught a replay of that goal, but he t- takes a quick head check, shoulder check going into the corner, fires one to the front of the net. Larkin doesn't get all of it, but he got enough of it to, to put it in. And so uh, if, if you're a Red Wings fan, you're probably pretty pleased with uh, both of those two guys coming out of that game. Yeah. I mean, you know, just going back and taking a peek through the stats there. I mean, they they were two of Detroit's better players, and honestly, that's what you want to see, um, you know, from the Red Wings for the growth because, you know, the wins aren't always going to be there. The goals aren't always going to be there. But uh, when they are there, you do want to see it coming from those younger guys that you expect to be a part of the future there. But, you know, honestly, the Wings got a huge break with Curtis McElhaney. I think it was, what, five goals at five on five that he gave up on only 16 shots against. So you're not going to get too many times where you get a goalie posting a sub 70% save percentage. Uh, So definitely take full advantage there. Yes. Um, So then they had had a day off, they had a practice day, then they go, uh, they host Carolina. And that was a much different kind of game. I mean, this was, I, I still believe that Tampa Bay is the best team in the league. And, and they have a great blue line. They really do. But I am really coming around to the idea that Carolina's is the best blue line in the league. I was marveling all night at the way that those guys defend. They're huge. They're mobile. Uh, they very rarely let you into, into you know prime space. And they can all chip in. I mean, I, I think it was Dougie Hamilton that had the shorthanded goal. Yep. You're talking about a 6'6 defenseman getting up ice for a shorthanded goal. And oh, by the way, he's like on a blue line with basically clones of himself at this point. I mean, Dougie Hamilton is on a, a little higher pedestal. I would put Slavin in the same tier as him, 
But then you still got Pesci. You've still got Brady Shea, who's turned into a nice player. Uh, I really like Jake Bean, what, what he's done so far in the NHL. Uh, I am just blown away by by what Carolina's defense core you know, is composed of and, and how well they work together. It's so impressive. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Dougie Hamilton joining the rush to score a shorthanded goal there, and that's really been the MO of the Hurricanes penalty kill the whole season is they're just this ultra – um, aggressive penalty kill. And the Red Wings really got a full taste of that. I mean, I think they really struggled with the end zone pressure to really set up and and things like that. But then to not only, you know, struggle with that pressure, but to have a defenseman of of Dougie Hamilton's kind of caliber be able to come back, transition up the ice on a two-on-one, and then do a little curl and drag as Larkin's trying to slide at him, you know, with stick with his stick like outstretched and then fire a wrist shot past Bernie. I mean it's it's incredible stuff. I think Dougie Hamilton's on like a nine game point streak right now. Uh, I mean, just just next level stuff, and uh, it really illustrates their depth when Jake Gardner is their taxi squad defenseman. Like that, that's yeah. the level of depth that you have in Carolina right now. It's a really, really scary uh, defensive blue line. I didn't actually think Carolina played particularly well, you know, relative to a lot of their other games that I've seen, um, and that's partly terrifying, but that's also a testament to how Detroit is really, I think aside from the one game where Carolina kind of beat them 5-2, I think Detroit has actually been able to hang with the Canes for the most part and not necessarily allow their high-octane offense to really, really get unleashed. Um, and so I think you saw a little bit more of that again, uh, you know, in the last game. And, and I think the Wings have to be at least a little bit encouraged by that. Yeah, I mean, what I kept noticing is aside from way too many odd man rushes they gave up, which they did give up way too many odd man rushes, especially, I, you know, maybe not ironically with the way things have gone this year, on Detroit power plays, Carolina was getting too many odd man rushes. Um, but aside from that, what impressed me is the way that uh, the Red Wings, both forwards and defensemen really, um, forced Carolina to take their shots from enough distance that that Jonathan Bernier um, was able to make some some not necessarily easy saves, but some important saves. Um, he one of his better saves of the night came off of a stanchion in the corner off a weird hop that he fielded like a shortstop uh, fielding the scorching ground ball. Um, but you know, so I thought Jonathan Bernier was very good again, as he has been really for the bulk of this season. I gave him a B plus in my midseason grades, and people said I should have gave him an A and I think they might be right. I, I might have uh, I might have overreacted to a couple games right before I was writing them that he gave up four in in a couple games in a row, and that might be my bad. Bernie has been really good. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the one I texted you about right after you, you you published. I said, <laughs> "All right, your Bernie grade." You know, if anybody was going to get an A on this team, it would be Jonathan Bernie. I mean, you know, even after these games against Carolina and Tampa. He is eighth in the NHL and five on five expected goals saved above average. Like this is ridiculous. I mean, you you watch the Detroit defense. You see some of the chances they give up. You see how much Thomas Grace, a goaltender who is outstanding in his own right and has been the last few years, is struggling to adapt uh, to playing behind this team. Jonathan Bernie is the human eraser. I mean, he has been in the top ten going all the way back to December of 2019, and in, in his ability to save shots that should go in. And so, you know, he he is what allows Detroit to be successful in the system they're going to play. Because, you know, we're talking about them playing this bend-don't-break system. We're talking about them trying to be tight through the neutral zone. It really only works because 
of Jonathan Bernier. It works because he covers up the mistakes. It works because he's able to be that last line of defense. I mean, you know, you can say a couple of those were luck saves, the the couple of, you know, knob saves off of his stick, you know, on Svechnikov. And I think it was Slavin in the first period. I mean, Mm -hmm. those are saves. Maybe you call a little lucky, but at the end of the day, he makes those saves. He keeps them in it. uh, And he gives them a chance to win. And he really gives them a chance, like in that Tampa game, of, hey, if they capitalize on all their breaks, you can beat this team. You can beat these guys. I mean, at one point, I think Detroit was up 5-2, and and really the score only looks close because Tampa scored a couple goals in the last couple of minutes, but uh, he he is the human eraser. So uh, really just unbelievable level of play over the last year plus. I'll tell you what what my calculus was, was I didn't want to give any A's on an eight-win team. And that might be a little pig-headed thinking, determining the outcome before I went through the process. And what ultimately kind of what I've been reflecting on with this is that they're an eight-win team and Jonathan Bernier is a seven-win goalie. And I hate goalie wins as a stat, but it's not like he's a below 500 goalie. He is somehow at or above. I don't know if he he might be at now, but like he's above 500. No, he's seven and six. He's seven and six on a team with eight wins that's in the second. I fucked up. I get it. Like, it's just, it's unreal. Like, if you just compare to what Grice, Pickard, Howard, uh, Eric Comrie for a game have done, and then you look at Bernier, there's a reason there's been a total of three (laughs) wins by a goalie not named Jonathan Bernier going back to the start of last season. Three wins. Crazy stat. Three. Two of them by Jimmy Howard that happened before Halloween of 2019. And the one Thomas Grace win. There have those are the three wins. That's it. So it's just Mark. I can't even fathom how he's done this, but it's it's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. I'll take the L. I deserve it. Um, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say about the Carolina game is I, I did think the Larkin line matched up pretty well all all together. I mean they they always get tough matchups. And Anthony Manta gets the goal late with the empty net. It goes off a skate, not the prettiest goal in the world. But I thought that group of him, Manta, and Fabry, all told, still had a pretty good day. Yeah, I mean, they matched up against the Sebastian Ajo line, which is a heck of a line. I think it was Ajo, Natchez, and Niederreiter. Um, that line and the defense pairing behind him was Pesci and Shea. And um, against uh, with Ajo on the ice and Dylan Larkin on the ice, the Red Wings controlled 80% of the shots taken. That's not something that happens to Sebastian Ajo very often to, you know, be able to control the level of play and, and really limit the Ajo line in 10 minutes of ice time to just three shot attempts. Uh, so I think you have to be really, really pleased with um, how well that line played, controlled the offense, generated their own chances, uh, and really limited arguably Carolina's top line to to very little. And that's what allowed the wings to stay so competitive in that game. When we talk about Dylan, and we've talked about this a lot on the show in the past, when we've talked about Dylan Larkin's evolution as a defensive center, I think this is part of it that is really interesting because you can watch Larkin and you can see him compete for pucks. So you can see him kind of smother guys. You can see him throw little jabs and stalls on guys to, to just slow him down, throw him off just enough. But honestly, the thing that makes Dylan Larkin a, a, a very good and potentially elite defensive center is when he has games like this where 
The best defense is having the puck. The best defense is winning battles in the opponent's defensive end so that they never break the puck up ice because you don't want to see Sebastian Ajo in transition, right? You want to see Dylan Larkin winning that race in the in the plus corner. And even if he's not scoring, which he didn't last night, he had a I think he had a couple shots, but um, uh, several shots, but um, no, you know nothing crazy dangerous. He had one that I thought Nadelkovich put a, a really good um, pad save on. That's still great. That's this is this was I would term a great defensive performance by Larkin, even without that one game saving back check. Because what did you do? You held one of the game's most dynamic young centers to three shot their line to three shot attempts. Yeah, and I, you know sometimes people say, okay, well the numbers say this. What is it on the ice that they're doing? And Max, I think you kind of illustrated it. I think number one, they do a really nice job winning puck battles in the offensive zone. So Larkin is absolutely tenacious. Uh, as a four checker, I think Anthony Mantha is very underrated as a four checker. I don't think people give him enough credit for how well he's able to seal along the boards, for how well he uses his stick, how well he positions himself to take away passing lanes when he's the F3 that's up high. I think he does a really nice job in that realm and makes outlets more difficult than they need to be. And then I think when you're watching this team defend in transition, there's always that back pressure. Fabry's a great skater. Larkin's a great skater. Manta, when he's got his legs moving and he's got his stick in position, takes away so much ice. And then as soon as they recover the puck in their own zone, they break out of their zone so well. And so that's why I think they do a really nice job against these types of lines because they are so good and so aggressive in all three phases uh, and really all three zones of the ice that it makes it very difficult to play against them. Yeah, and I I just really like him and Manta together. I know that they they like um, they think Manta can drive his own line too, and that's a, that's a useful thing that to be able to do. But when I watch him, I just think those two play off each other well. Maybe Manta has the puck a little less when he's with Larkin, and you know you certainly want the puck in Anthony Manta's hands a lot, especially when he's going. Um, but we even saw against Tampa, you know, they were on a line there and I thought Anthony Mantha had the puck plenty. He created a lot in that game. Yeah. And I mean, I think I've probably been one of the largest proponents of splitting that line up. But, you know, at the end of the day, you see what happens when they play together. They really are dynamic. And Tyler Bertuzzi's the third part of that trio. And when he's back, uh, you know, fully suspect that you have that line reunited because uh, at the end of the day, they just control so much when they're on the ice together that it's worthwhile to maybe take 20 minutes of them being dominant as opposed to trying to draw even over 40 minutes. Um, And and in particular, I think when you look at a team like Boston, they've been able to do this with Marchand and Bergeron for years uh, and years and years. And, and, And maybe that's kind of the model that Detroit needs to take when they're building their team. So the Red Wings lose last night, two to one. Uh, They'll play again. Tuesday evening at LCA. Um, after the game on Sunday night, a little bit of news breaks that uh, Donovan Sabrango, Red Wings' third round pick from this most recent 2020 draft, uh, has signed his ELC. He's obviously playing in the AHL right now, waiting for the OHL to, to start. He will have to go back to the OHL once that happens in, in uh, the ELC is for next year. So he will have to go um, back to the AHL or OHL once that happens. Uh, but I believe this makes Sabrango the first member of the 2020 class to sign. Uh, and I just wanted to see what you make of uh, of him signing already. I mean, I, I think uh, it's been positive reviews from what I've heard in Grand Rapids. Obviously, he made a run at Team Canada's World Junior Team. 
Uh, I put them in my stock up category when we did prospect watch, but I, I wanted to get your opinion on uh, Sobrango signing and um, how how significant should people view this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly encouraging because that should tell you that the, the Red Wings are somewhat pleased with his level of play in the AHL. And as a result, they do think he'll be, you know, in the neighborhood of, of maybe being an NHL player in the next handful of years. I, I kind of liken it back to, you know, the the career path that Gustav Lindstrom had to a certain extent where he kind of moved a little bit faster than I think a lot of people expected him to relative to where he was drafted back in the, the third round of the 2017 draft. I mean, he, you know, very quickly uh, signed his ELC and was able to to join the Red Wings, uh, you know, in, in last season. And you have to wonder maybe if Sabrango's on a similar timeline there. Uh, he is going to, so he's 19. I think that'll be his ELC signing age, which means uh, you'll be able to slide the contract one year. So you can effectively think of this as, um, you know, being under team control for uh, four. arguably four years. Uh, so I would expect that, you know, maybe you don't see him this year or next year, just given the, the NHL-CHL agreement, but potentially the year after that. Uh, so talking about 2022, 2023 might be the first time uh, you're looking at him making the, the roster with an outside shot. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good uh, that's a good timetable. I mean, it, really what it tells you is, you know, the Red Wings don't have to sign anyone they draft. Obviously, you're going to sign your first round pick. You're probably going to sign most of your second round picks over the course of, you know, a few years. Um, but beyond that, you don't have to sign anyone. I mean, there was a class not too long ago, and you don't want to replicate this too often, where the Red Wings had like four third round picks, and I don't believe signed any of them. Is that 2016, 2017 with Kakinsalo and all those guys? Yeah, I think it was the 2016 draft, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so th- I think they can still sign Kakinsalo this year, but I just don't expect them to. And so, you know, there are years where you can have a ton of third round picks and not sign any of them. And so um, I think it is meaningful when you see a third round pick signed this early, it really tells you because you have a limit of, of how many contracts you can have signed. And so using one of them on a kid you just drafted in the third round should tell you that this is a kid that the Red Wings uh, have some hopes for and and, and and believe in. I mean, they, they signed Johansson only after. Um, I mean, they had to wait till after last season, but you know, they, they signed him after last season. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll presumably sign both Lucas Raymond and Jonathan Bergeron at the end of this NHL season. But, you know, that just kind of shows you, right. They hadn't even signed Bergeron yet. And, and so, uh, I, I think it's a, you know, it's not a sign that Sabrango is going to be a top pair guy. Like don't run too wild with it. It just tells you that they've seen something that they like in him playing at the pro level at age 18, that, that they're, that they seem to believe, um, that this is a, in, in a, on a good trajectory is, is what I would read into that. Yeah. And, and that's honestly the, the furthest extent you should go to, to reading into that. And so to, to clarify, it was actually the 17 draft because I'm misremembering where Lindstrom was drafted. He was drafted in the second round and then the third round, that was where, you know, everything kind of fell apart for the wings. That was your, your Casper Consolo draft. That's, uh, Oh, you Petruzzelli's know, Lane They could still yeah, sign Keith Petruzzelli's in that draft, and then Zach Gallant is in that draft. But, you know, probably not seeing any of those top three guys. You'll probably still see Petruzzelli sign this year um, as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think with, with Lindstrom, you know, he signed. He was very quickly in the NHL. I think he signed when he was 20. You know, uh, Sabrang was signing here with his age being 19. Uh, that does offer that year of flexing. But I think maybe three years from the draft is when you would expect to see him. So 
Um, and again, at the earliest, yeah, at the earliest. And and again, you know, that doesn't tell you anything about quality, ceiling, caliber, just tells you they think he's on the right path to being an NHL defenseman. Yep, I agree with that completely. Don't don't read into it too much about his overall prospect status, just that it's a, a good sign about how it's gone since the draft, which if you've been reading Prospect Stock Watch, you might have already known. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, uh, moving on to the topic. I had a story come out today uh, that's kind of our our rumblings column, I guess you would call it, what I'm hearing about the Red Wings at the deadline. Um, One of the topics in there was about reasonable returns for Luke Lindenning and Bobby Ryan. And I think by extension, you can kind of infer some things about the market overall. I can actually just tell you some things about the market overall. It's There is a lot of uncertainty about how busy it's going to be for all the reasons I think we've talked about in the past. Um, One thing I focused on in this story is that one of the things the Red Wings have going for them is that a couple of their, and and actually several of their um, tradable players are on short, cheap contracts. And that I think is is important this year. It's it's probably going to be the the bigger the contract, um, you know, the the more uh, motivated team's going to have to be to take it on because of the the flat cap, because of the financial restraints, and because uh, it just is harder to to justify uh, bringing in somebody for a draft pick if you don't know if you can get that home playoff revenue if you fall short of the cup. So I think that's a good thing the Red Wings have going for them. Also, certainly they have the cap space if they wanted to retain a little bit of that. Uh, And if they're talking about picks and prospects, it does kind of stand to reason that um, one thing a team that they're trading with wouldn't have to give up is a roster player. Like if they're getting a pick or a prospect, the, the team that they're trading with doesn't have to lose a roster player while they wait for whichever Red Wing they traded for to quarantine and join their team in whatever capacity that might be. It's, it's different in different places. So um, that was one thing. And then I talked a little bit about the um, prices that I kind of expect and have gotten a sense would be considered reasonable, would be considered a great get for Glenn Denning and Bobby Ryan. And I've kind of, I think based on what I can infer, um, it seems like a third or a fourth is kind of the range that is maybe most reasonable for those guys. I think if they got a second, that would be looked at as they, them doing really, really well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's really interesting. Like we talked about in the last episode, what this deadline's going to be like and what it's going to look like. I think, you know, Max, I think you're spot on in that overall, it's going to be, a, a you know, maybe a quieter deadline than uh, what we've come accustomed to. And I also think, you know, maybe the makeup of the player might be different. You know, you kind of alluded to teams not really wanting to, you know, make cross border deals. Like we saw some of the issues. I think you highlighted it in your, your article with the Patrick line, a Pierre Luke Dubois deal. 
um, having the flat cap, not necessarily being able to spend um, freely as much as you know they as teams are kind of accustomed to, um, given how much revenue has been lost. So I think a couple things that stand out to me is one, I think you know, like you said, draft picks are going to be the the commodity that uh, contending teams are maybe more willing to deal um, to bring on a player uh, if they're worried about potentially losing someone for a period of time. Um, you know, on the flip side, you can argue that they would want, maybe want to make more salary neutral deals and not necessarily want to take salary on. But I think it'll weigh out. I think the competitive desire will weigh out for some of these teams. The other thing that kind of stands out to me is I wonder if there will be a market for players under contract beyond this year mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, hopefully with the the way the vaccine rollout's gone, we're potentially talking about next season not having the same level of COVID restrictions and that you're potentially having, you know, fans back in the building, revenues being back. Obviously, yes, teams took a hit for a while, but are they more willing to spend on a player that they're going to have under contract for the following year as opposed to our typical UFA rental that we're accustomed to seeing dealt? Either way, you know, if, if Glenn Denning and Ryan are called yeah, I think thirds and fourths are kind of what you, you're going to be expecting. I think maybe more of a third for for Bobby Ryan, maybe more of a fourth for Luke Glendening is uh, what I would consider you know reasonable value in my mind. But anything more than that, if you could upsell, upsell as much as you can if the team's willing to part with it. The eternal caveat is that it only takes one team to really fall in love with a player to really um you know decide he's their missing piece to decide that you know this is the 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 guy who gets us over the top and that can be true for any of these guys and so if that person emerges then you know you the, the price you know I, don't don't take this you know that I'm telling you right here as as kind of gospel for for uh for what I would expect as prices it, it it only takes one team to think differently that's what you see in the draft every year too is you can see as many lists as you want of this is where you know guys should go this is how I would rank them. This is how the scouting community ranks them, whatnot. And then every year there are guys who surprise and, and jump up. And that's because if one team thinks you're their guy, that's all you need. And so um, that certainly applies here. And uh, and I think that's important to note. It's just, a, you know, I think it's important as you calibrate your expectations to do it reasonably and not be disappointed then, I guess, when, when that first round pick doesn't come or maybe when maybe there's no second round picks in this group this year. That I think that's possible. Yeah, so I, mean, I, th- I think it's just important as an expectation setter. It, it really only takes one Nashville to go throw a first-round pick at Paul Gostad, right? Sure. You know, it takes one team to do it. I mean, you highlighted the the Pajot deal last year that was very surprising. I mean, I think everyone was blown away a couple years ago when Detroit got a first, second, and a third for Thomas Tatar That's uh, right. from Vegas. I mean, that was a lot more than a lot than people thought they would get for for Tatar, even more value than I thought they would get for Tatar. So uh, you know, it just takes one team to be willing to spend and, and, and be aggressive. Uh, whether or not we get that team will be another story. And then I think the other caveat that's going to go into this trade deadline is, do you have teams making deals ahead of the expansion draft, mm-hmm. recognizing that they're, they may lose some players or they may want to acquire some players that they could potentially protect um, in, or, or not have to protect or allow to be exposed or any way to kind of circumvent, you know, what did these teams learn from the Vegas expansion draft? And will you see certain teams? I mean, Carolina's a team where they're potentially walking into the expansion draft with Brady Shea, Hayden Fleury, 
and Jake Bean exposed. And and do you want to lose one of those three guys for absolutely nothing, or are you going to try and make a deal and and get something in return? So I think that'll be the other thing to to, to definitely consider here. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that's a good point. I mean, does anybody stand out? I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot too much here on that point, but does any any team stand out as having a really obvious uh, expansion draft situation that is is something they could look to solve in the interim between now and then? I mean, there's some teams, a lot of teams that have those situations are contenders. And so they're balancing. They don't want to subtract in the middle of a cup run of a middle of a playoff run um, and maybe might prefer to do that in the offseason if possible. Um, but sometimes there's teams that are somewhere in the middle there. Yeah, I mean, I just highlighted uh, Carolina. I think they're definitely going to be one. Yeah, you know, Tampa's going to have an interesting situation because they do have three no move clauses. They're gonna, obviously they're guys they protect anyways, and Kucherov, Stamkos, and Hedman. But Kucherov was a guy they were trying to unload. Um, you know, earlier they'll probably be able to get away with Kucherov's, uh, Kucherov, um, Stamkos. You know, Point Sorelli. And then they're going to have some interesting decisions on who they're going to end up exposing um, and what they're going to do the rest of the way. And they also have a really good decor where they might, you know, have some difficult choices to make. I think Colorado is another team that's absolutely loaded with a lot of different guys. They may end up in a scenario where uh, a Tyson Yost is, is exposed. And again, he plays lower in the lineup for him, for them. But, you know, that might be an interesting one. And then their decor as well, um, you know, Kill McCarr, Sam Gerrard, Devin Taves, you know, they're going to be in a scenario where there's four guys right there um, and you're going to only be able to protect likely three of them if they go with the seven, three and one. Uh, So do you have a way to make a deal for um, a Devin Taves, a a Ryan Graves, Sam Gerrard, because they have to protect Eric Johnson with his no move clause. So a lot of you know really interesting scenarios I think are going to exist for some of the, some of the contenders right now. One thing we uh, ran out of time for last episode that I want to kind of circle back on today is we had planned to do a little bit more of a dive into some guys in Sweden. We had certainly early this season spent a ton of time uh, on the Red Wings Swedish pipeline and how everybody over there was faring, but it felt like we hadn't checked in kind of writ large with 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 that group in a while, and so I wanted to to do some. Uh, some checking in on Sweden. I mean, it, it is a little tough because Lucas Raymond's been out now with an injury for a couple of weeks. Uh, Rogla hasn't been playing all that much. I mean, the, the Sweden schedule right now is kind of wild. Like you'll, you, it's usually a very predictable Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule, and you'll have the odd game here or there on a different day. Today, it feels like half the days I wake up and I check flash score and, you know, there's a, there's a SHL game going on. I don't, I assume these are all like makeup games or postponement games that they're trying to get in before the playoffs start. So I haven't seen Rogla play a ton uh, lately or, or seen that they are playing a ton lately. Um, but when I look at more Sider's uh, kind of moving average of shot share on Sven Gelska hockey, which is Zach Ellenthal's site that I would highly encourage all of you to check out. Uh, it just keeps moving up and up. Yeah. I mean, you know, Rogel's next game, I think, will be the 19th. So you've got a couple of days before we get there. But I mean, you know, with between the visualizations you see on Sven Gelska hockey and some of the random stuff that I throw out there, I mean, Moritz Sider is arguably the best player in the SHL right now and, and arguably should win best defenseman, should be in consideration for MVP there. Um, obviously, those award races aren't really as, um, I should say, as like highly followed. Um, as they are over in the NHL. But either way, I think he belongs in the conversation there. I mean, what he's done is just ridiculous, to to put it simply. Yeah. 
Albert Johansson, we talked about. I do think we got to quite a bit on the last show as we were doing prospect risers. He's closing strong again this year. Jonathan Bergren hasn't been on the score sheet as much. Anything standing out to you in, in his profile or how the end of the season's going for him? It's not like he's not scoring at all, but it's just we, we kind of got accustomed to seeing Jonathan Bergren on the score sheet once, if not twice, just about every time you looked. And, and now he's dipped down to where it's more, uh, I think he's at about 0.9 now where he was at or above a point per game for the, for the whole year. Yeah, I mean, he's tailed off a little bit, which I think you were going to expect to a certain degree, just given very few guys his age can score at that rate. I mean, he's still north of uh, 1.7 primary points per 60, uh, you know, at, at, at even strength, which is a really strong number um, to, to be at. I mean, he's he's still an absolutely outstanding player. I think what I'm most impressed with him is when he's on the ice, uh, his his hockey team is scoring 60% of the goals at even strength, and he's actually controlling play to a certain extent at five on five, which is not something we really saw or were ex- or at least I wasn't expecting to see from him, um, given that he hadn't necessarily been touted as a play driving winger. But you know, it's five on five course, the four percentage, 53% on the season, which is really really solid. So overall, I think even if he's not showing up on the score sheet. Uh, he is still driving play when he's on the ice for his team. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with with Bergen too, part of the situation is he as a playmaker. Maybe it's never quite totally in his kind of control too. Like sometimes when you're the setup man, sometimes your your teammate you know finishes the play. Sometimes they don't. I think everyone in the Red Wings would love to see Jonathan Bergen. Uh, score some more goals, but I also think that isn't he in double digits now for this season in terms of goals? In terms of goals, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and for a, for a player of his kind of style, in in about forty five games, ten goals is still pretty solid. Like, I don't I don't think you can expect him to come over here and be really even a twenty goal guy. He's gonna make his money on assists, and so I do wonder if maybe the points are a little less in his control here than maybe like a Lucas Raymond, for example, who I think does it every which way. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's a great point to to bring up with guys who um, are great, you know passers and uh, have really great, you know, vision, you are absolutely reliant on the finishing talent of your teammates. I mean, there's, there are certain assists where you can serve things up on a platter, but you know, if you're, if you're not getting the finishing ability from your teammates, you're just not going to end up with the point totals. Yeah. All right. Uh, who are we missing? Theodore Niederbach and Elmer Soderblom. I have checked recently and it has seemed like they are regulars in for London. Now, both of them, I think at various times this year have kind of been the 13th forward, I think the last time I looked, maybe they were playing with Carl Henriksen on the fourth line of all young guys in Forlunda. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, not a bad way to be for them, right? I mean, uh, especially those guys getting uh, a couple of opportunities to play more regularly on the big club, especially Soderblom, I think really stands out to me as as an interesting guy because I don't know that anyone necessarily expected him to be a regular uh, with the big club this season. I think his progression um, has been really, really fun to watch because uh, it's so unexpected. I think a lot of people saw the guy at his size and said, okay, definitely has some talent here, but uh, you know, what's he going to be able to contribute in the long run? And and in reality, you're seeing him sitting here with a five on five Corsi four percentage of 58% uh, scoring five points already at five on five, in addition to what he does on the power play. 
a heck of a hockey player. And then Niederbach stepping in in his 17 games, he's at 59% uh, from a five on five Corsi four percentage. And so both of them, I think, have you know really taken advantage of their small but uh, opportunity that they've gotten with the big club this year. You know, I think everyone's heard my Elmer Soderblom spiel before about wondering, you know, kind of what would translate and especially around the world juniors um, when, when he was doing it against men and he just keeps doing it. I mean, he, he, I expected the world juniors was going to be a situation that he was able to dominate because these are, you know, at the oldest, right? 20, more likely 19, uh, year olds. Actually, they're all 19 at that tournament until maybe the very end, someone could turn 20, like on like January 1st or something and be 20 for the, for the quarterfinals. But, um, he t- goes back to the SHL and you see the way that he's using his body, using his skill, which is very good for his size against men. And it's working in one of the best leagues in the world. And it just gets harder and harder to find why he doesn't make it. I still think you're probably going to point to the feet if there's if there is something holding him back. But uh, you know, I think the Red Wings are happy with how his skating's coming along, and so um, you know, I, I just think he's answering more and more questions. Their ice hockey gifts uh, is is a great account to follow on Twitter. Um, I don't know if they're like a Red Wing specific account, but I often see them tweeting. Um, highlights and clips of of different Red Wings shifts. They're not all the goals and assists either. Sometimes they show you some of the really crucial shifts that that don't lead to the score sheet, and this usually don't make it onto like the kind of highlight reel that that you'd see over here. So I think it's a really valuable resource, and they had a, a really good one from Soderblom a couple days ago that I think is really worth watching to just show how he uses two things: that's his size and reach, and his hands um, to be a really effective player in the offensive zone. Yeah, and that's what really separates, I think, the big guys who make it to the NHL and then the big guys who later don't is the guys. I mean, they're not going to be necessarily blazing fast guys, but if you know how to position yourself, use your frame, use your size, uh, use your stick to take away passing lanes, something that I think Mantha does really, really well that doesn't get talked about enough, you're going to make it in this league because just think about the radius that these guys can defend. And if they know what they're doing, they're smart enough to see it. They see the play happening. They can be an absolute nightmare to play against. That's why you have so many hockey GMs, you know, lusting after these big mobile defensemen. It's because if you get a guy that knows how to play that way with that frame, you are in business. You you get Victor Hedman, you're, you're going to win Stanley Cups. Like, that's just what happens. And so that's yeah. why there's that pursuit, that chase. It's You can do it with the smaller guys, absolutely. But... If you can find the guys that are like the the Victor Hedmans, the Chris Prongers, that's that's what the ideal defenseman is like because of ha- the the reach they they can play with. Same thing goes for forwards and their ability to defend through the neutral zone. So I think he he could be a, a very interesting guy to continue to watch because he continues to succeed at the different levels. Yeah, no. So I I think uh, I think you know he's he's been a guy who the more you see it against. Men, just the more confident you can be, and and I, you know, I think it, you'd have a really hard time finding significant fault with Soderblom's season, especially down the stretch here. Yeah, I mean, you can't fault him. He's he's gone through multiple different levels here and succeeded at all of them, and now is you know playing uh, for the big league or for the for the big club. I mean, he's getting about ten minutes a night at five on five, not a whole lot, but you know that's that's still a very solid role to have carved out. For a guy that was a, a late round pick. 
I mean, and Forlunda is just a hard team to get ice with. I mean, part of this is that Lucas Raymond's injury enabled this for both of these two guys, Niederbach and Soderblom. Uh, it, it just opens up more time on the wings, and, and both of those are, are wings. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> that was absolutely um, intended. <laughs> As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, let's go to the mailbag. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this one is from Zdeno Churro. And he says, do you believe Dylan Larkin is the long-term answer at 1C? Oh, I mean, I'm certain we'll disagree here. But my answer is no. Um, I think he's very good, very capable. Can he play as a 1C? Sure, you're seeing that. And you've seen that the last couple of years. But if you want to be a Stanley Cup contending team, uh, arguably, I believe you have to have at least one center as good, if not better, than Larkin uh, for you to be able to be a consistent cup contender. I don't think we're going to disagree as much as you thought. I, I think Dylan Larkin is a 1C in, in, the de- in the definition of the 30 best centers in the national hockey team. I put him pretty comfortably in there. I, I think he's somewhere in that late teens to early 20s range for me among centers, and I think that that makes him a 1C but where we agree wholeheartedly is that you need two guys who are in at least that top, I would say, probably 25 centers in the NHL to win a cup. And you really want one who's more like in that top 10 or so. And so from that standpoint, I, I think that it's unlikely that Dylan Larkin will be the best center on a contender. Um, I think it's possible he might play the most minutes as a center on the next Red Wings uh, cup team. Like I could see him taking on you know, still a 21 minute a night role while maybe a more offensive minded guy or a younger guy takes 18, 19 with kind of a more, uh, you know, scoring focused role. Whereas Larkin, I think what, what he's proven so well to be able to do is to do exactly what he did to Ajo and that's play hard matchups and, and usually win them, not just by defending, but by also, you know, playing with the puck in the ozone by scoring some goals um, and I think he will continue to do that for the next, for the foreseeable future in Detroit. So, um, is he 
going to be a, you know, the, the most used center on a contender. I think that's very possible. But is he going to be the highest scoring center on a contender? Increasingly, I think maybe not. That's bold. Top 18 to 20 centers? No, I said eight, uh, teen, high teens to early 20. I mean, I, yeah, I think 18 <laughs> to 23. I don't know, somewhere in there. All right. All right I might be wrong. I haven't, I'd have to go through and look. But, I mean, uh, top 30 though, right? Like, I think that's also bold. I don't know, really? Maybe top 30 not bold, but top 30 might be stretching it for me. I think he's top 30 easy, and I would say it's probably more like I, I, oh, maybe late teens is a little bold because I, I probably do, as I'm going through the league, I probably skip over some situations where two teams have two top 15 guys. Like that's your your Pittsburgh, that's your Tampa situation. Um, Edmonton. I'm trying to think of other ones around the league, but I, I think it's probably around low 20s to, to, to yeah, I, I think it's top 30. All right, all right, let me get a barometer here. So, okay, yeah. would you rather have Dylan Larkin or Bo Horvat? I would take Larkin. You take Larkin over Bo Horvat. All right, okay, that's a, that's that's my barometer there. I think those guys are roughly. I don't think it's a bad comp though in terms of the yeah. dynamic between Horvat and Pedersen. Like, yeah, I, I would say Larkin's a little better than Horvat, so you don't need quite Pedersen to make to make that same dynamic. Um, but I think Pedersen's a top five or six center in the NHL. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, like, Patterson's there. I mean, he, he's very clearly there. More just like I think Horvat's probably right around the, the skill level of of the guy that I'm thinking about there. But I think I think you'd be surprised at the number of teams that have multiple really good centers. I mean, we haven't talked about Florida and Huberto and Barkov. You haven't talked well, about well, Huberto plays on the wing, but he can play center, and he has been a center. well. Okay, but th- okay, then we have to <laughs> we have to filter those out then. All right, fair enough. I'll give you that. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like you know when Datsuk and Zetterberg were on a line, you couldn't tout the Red Wings center depth if they were using one of those guys on the wing. You know what I mean? Fair, fair. I'll give you that. But you know, um, there's there's but, other teams like Winnipeg, right? With now with Dubois, no, Winnipeg has great centers. Yeah, I, mean, I would put yeah. Larkin and Pierre Luc Dubois on on even ground. Is about what I would say. Interesting. Okay, that's how I that's how I view Larkin. I mean, maybe that's a little high. Maybe it's maybe some people would argue it's a little low. I mean, but um, I I view them on pretty even ground. So I would view. Um, and I really, I, I really like Mark Shifley. I don't know that I see Shifley as like unattainably better than Pierre-Luc Dubois and Dylan Larkin either, although he has scored more than either of them at any point have. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is a topic worth, uh, revisiting maybe in the off season or, or around that time. Cause, uh, we could do a pretty good whole episode on where does Dar- Dylan Larkin rank? Because one of the things that always comes up is, is people will say, like, because I think they'll just imagine him for a moment on Toronto and say, well, he'd be the three C on Toronto because Toronto has John Tavares and Austin Matthews. Right. Uh, and and they say, OK, so so he's not a he's not a top six center on a contender just because one contender has two of the 10 best centers in the NHL. Right. Um, but I can also look at Vegas and say he'd be the number one center in Vegas. That's fair. And then that really goes to show you the number of different ways you can construct a hockey team and be yeah. successful in this league. I mean, you look at the Islanders. Did anyone pick the Islanders to lead the yeah, East? He'd be the number one center on the Islanders. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's right there. He'd I mean, be the number one center on the Stars, I think. Yeah. And I mean, the Islanders are leading the East Division right now. And that's not something that I think anyone would have thought of. Um, you know, you look in Carolina. I mean, he probably plays behind Ajo. You yeah. can argue, you know, about where Jordan Stahl and where Vincent Trocek are playing. I mean, Trocek's obviously had an outstanding season, but he's in the conversation for two there. But then you look at some of the other, you know, contending teams and sure, he's not playing there in Tampa. He's not playing there in Toronto. He's not playing there, uh, you know, in Edmonton, uh, if they ever split up, you know, dress out on McDavid, which you never know if they're going to do. So, right. 
you know, all in all, very interesting. Minnesota, probably one C in Minnesota, right? Yes. Yep. And I, I really like Joel Erickson X, so that's no yeah. slander to him. Um, but I, I do think he'd be number one in Minnesota. That's another division leader. So, so it, you just get into this interesting dynamic here where there's, in some ways, uh, the dispersal of of center talent in the league is not even at all. And so me saying he's a top 30 center, and again, I would say probably more like top 25, um, doesn't mean that he wouldn't be the 3C on Toronto. He would, um, unless they move like Tavares to the wing or something. Uh, which might be the smart move, but it could also mean he could be the one C for a, a, you know multiple teams that were in the final four last year. So it, it's just a not it's an uneven dispersal. So I, it's a great talking point. Yeah, yeah, and maybe at some point uh, we go through and uh, we take stock of how far the wings are away with some of the key pro- key players. Yeah. All right. So here's a good one from Lars, which maybe could also be a whole episode. Looking at the amount of expiring contracts, one has to wonder how many rookies can Red Wings fans expect for next season. Because surely the Red Wings can't re-sign everybody who's expiring, right? And he said, right? <laughs> um, I think he's a little nervous about whether that could happen. Uh, so in part, he wants to know how many rookies can you expect? And then specifically, he wants to know about Chalowski and Svechnikov and whether they'll be in the NHL. I'll tell you right now, we do not know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's anyone's guess with Chalowski and Svechnikov. And I mean, I think you saw last year the Wings had a handful of expiring contracts that they didn't end up bringing back. You know, Jonathan Erickson didn't come back. Jimmy Howard didn't come back. Handful of other guys, um, you know, had expiring deals that that didn't come back and weren't re-signed. And I think you would expect something similar here. I don't expect Darren Helm to be re-signed. Uh, Luke Lindenning, if he's not dealt, I would expect to be re-signed. Uh, I think Bobby Ryan is anyone's guess. You know, he's expressed interest in wanting to come back, but who knows? And same with Sam Gagne. I mean, he's been an outstanding, I think, depth player for the Wings. Wouldn't mind re-signing him, but you don't know what his career uh, path looks like and if he wants to come back here. I don't think you'll see Mark Stahl or Patrick Nemeth back, um, but I do think you'd see John Merrill back. And so yep. that leaves you with probably three forward holes up front and arguably two to three forward holes on on defense. Um, and And who's to say? I mean... You know, the the Wings have the ability to fill those with rookies, but I think time after time they've kind of demonstrated that they'll maybe fill one or two with rookies and then kind of bring in a couple of veterans like they did this year with uh, with Nemestikov coming in, with Bobby Ryan coming in, with Stetcher and, and uh, um, you know, Stahl and then Merrill coming in. So I think probably of those six holes, expect four veterans and maybe two rookies coming up. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Max? I think that's a very good ballpark. I would be surprised if at any one season in the next few years, you have more than three rookies, true rookies on the team. Now, I'm not going to count Rasmussen as one of those true rookies, not because so much of that 2018-19 season, which I think you can just kind of throw away, but because if he's up now, this will kind of assuage that right like in the same way that Zadina last year this is Zadina's first full season I'm I wouldn't call Philip Zadina a rookie not just because he doesn't have Calder eligibility but because he he got a a pretty good run last year that he was coming in um, differently so uh, I I think Mort Sider is a virtual lock as a rookie next year Uh, I would put Joe Valeno as better than not chance to play 45 to 50 NHL games I don't know for sure that he starts and breaks camp with the Red Wings. Um, but I would think that it's a situation similar to Zadina and Rasmus in the last two years where by midseason, they're up. Um, so that's two. Don't think it'll be Albert Johansson. 
Don't think it'll be Lucas Raymond. I don't think it'll be Jonathan Bergeron. I'm a little more open to it just because he's older. So he doesn't have the AHL experience, which I ultimately think is what will happen is they'll go AHL route with him. But it's been three years since his draft. So if they want, if there was someone they were really going to try it with and and really let someone, um, you know, have the benefit of the doubt after like a good camp, um, despite having no AHL experience, my guess is Bergeron would be the best candidate for that. I think he's going to be Giovanni Smith if they don't lose him in the expansion draft. But is he a rookie? Like, you know, same deal. Like, does he meet the definition? He hasn't played more than 20 games. He has Calder eligibility, but is he like a rookie? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not in that sense, but I think he also hasn't been given a full time shot, if you will. No, Uh, I agree. But I just mean like when I say three rookies tops, I wouldn't say Giovanni Smith's presence. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to talk about him as a rookie, then no, I'm just thinking more like first year full time with the team. I agree. I agree about that. I think he'll be full time next year. Yeah. So like by my, you know, analogy or the way I'm approaching it, Philip Zadina would be one of those this year. He's not a rookie, but this is his first full year. Um, you know, up with the team. So, well, maybe it's a better definition, honestly, because I think that would still qualify for like, you're probably not going to see two players like that. I mean, like, I guess you've seen Zadina and Rasmussen on a line on occasion, but by and large, they haven't used two guys under 22 on the same line in, in right. quite some time. Yeah. You know? So that's where maybe that's where you're thinking. Maybe it's a Giovanni Smith. It's maybe, uh, you know, Joe Valeno gets a, gets a shot and Chalowski maybe gets that shot on defense and Moritz Sider gets the shot, um, you know, there, or it's Gustav Lindstrom, one of those two. But I think Sider's definitely the most easily the, the, the biggest yes. one that's going to be there. It's just who else is going to be there? I'm not sure, but don't expect rookies to fill all of it. Are you shining the Chase Pearson bat signal? I almost did. I almost said it. <laughs> I almost said it, but then when I saw how they've kind of manipulated the taxi squad throughout the year, I think maybe he's a little further down on their pecking order than I would think. But he's a center, right? So he's he's a center. I I also think that like it, it maybe that's a maybe that's a position that if you have Rasmussen and depending on how they want to introduce Valeno to the NHL, um, you probably are going to want at least a veteran center in that mix too. You know, like like let's assume the centers next year are in some order. Larkin, Nemesnikov, Rasmussen, maybe Glenn Denning. But if there's a free agent area of need, like I don't think center is a bad idea there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly would not be surprised if they pull in a, a free agent center to come through and play. I mean, that yeah. would make a lot of sense here. Yeah, I think so too. So, um, And maybe Valeno starts on the wing then. That's where he's been in Sweden lately. That's how Larkin started in the NHL. Um, but, you know, it, I think it the, the, the farther – along the Red Wings uh, get in this rebuild without Chase Pearson debuting, uh, the more my uh, <laughs> my prediction of seeing him, uh, I think, gets tougher and tougher because now you're going to have guys like Niederbach coming up. You're going to have Valeno and Rasmussen entrenched and and all that jazz. So we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, what else do we got here? We've got Phil Roberto wants us to comment on the Red Wing decision makers with respects to call-ups and demotions to and from the farm system. Uh, I think he wants to know, is that a, just a GM decision or is that coaches as well? And what do we uh, make of Sveshnikov not being told the reason? I don't know that that's true. Is that is that something that is out there or are people just speculating? No, that came out in the uh, Griffin's postgame conference where really? there's a quote from him saying that he hadn't heard from Iserman or um, hadn't heard from Blashill 
in terms of the reason for being sent down. Um, I'll have to go watch that. I did not know that. Yeah. So it's also, it's kind of weird. I don't know that it's like as terrible sounding as maybe as it is. I mean, obviously you'd want the guy to know like, you know, what else you could do in, in, in that respect. But I mean, the frustrating part for a lot of people, including the, some of the players themselves, is, is hockey is certainly a business and, and things like this happen. It shouldn't happen. This is not a way that I would want anyone to ever be treated or felt like. But unfortunately, it seems to be the reality of the way things have operated for a long time. Um, as far as decision makers, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it's a joint decision between those two. Would you agree, Max? Yeah, I mean, it's the way that this works is the coach sets their lineup. That's true. But the coach and GM are in near constant communication over the course of a season. Like I, I, Eisenman's probably traveling um, in, to some degree, I would imagine, to see prospects for the draft. And that's part of this. But um, by and large, it's a pretty good bet that he and Jeff Blaschel are in regular communication about how the team's playing, how different players are playing. I would be stunned if he was ever stunned by a lineup decision or, you know, like it's not to say he's going to, you know, but a, a GM uh, that meddles in the lineup is not a GM you want. Right. So uh, it, it's, there's kind of a, a confluence here of, of trying to kind of how to parse this. I think what people are looking for and the answer here is who do I blame for Svechnikov being sent down? And I don't think you're going to be able to narrow that down to, to one person. It's an organization, you know, it's an organizational body that results in something like this. Yeah. I mean, we talk about organizational philosophies all the time. You either are talking about a fractured organization, if there's not that communication and joint yes. buy-in, or you're talking about an organization that works together and therefore it's a joint decision. And I'm pretty sure it's the latter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, we've got Lassie Anderson um, asks, if every player currently on the Red Wings was playing at their peak performance of their entire career, how much better would the Red Wings be? So you're basically you're getting prime Franz Nielsen, prime Valtteri Filppula, prime Mark Stahl. Who else is pet? Prime Thomas Grice. Uh, you can maybe even bring that up to to the younger guy. I mean, I don't. I don't can we? go forward and put like Philip Zadina in his prime right now. I don't know how to necessarily take this one. I don't, I don't know that I would just because I don't know what it is. I yeah, mean, yeah, okay, I can maybe fair. reasonably guess so it. peak so far. Yeah. I mean, of peak so far, I think obviously Franz Nielsen and Valtteri Filippola are two huge additions in that regard, because those guys at their peak, I mean, you know, Franz Nielsen was one of the best defensive centers in the NHL uh, and could score um, a fair bit as well. And then Phil Pillow was again, a very defensive, defensively responsible center who could put up 60 points in a season and, you know, actually played a little first and second line center when he first went to Tampa. So, you know, he absolutely, you, this team is so much better. I mean, Mark Stahl, uh, his peak was, was solid, uh, prior to the eye injury. So, you know, that's another defenseman you add to me, it's still an average team. I don't know that, this is a anything more than maybe a seven seed in the playoffs. Yeah, I think they could be a little better than a seven seed if you give me that that kind of center depth because you have a nice blend there between Nielsen as the kind of two way center that he was in his prime, Philpola as the offensive center that he was in his prime, Larkin who does both. I don't know that the wings. I mean, 
I mean, how granular can I go? Can I get like Sam Gagne's nine point game, Sam Gagne? Like, how granular of a peak can I get to? I mean, Sam Gagne's peak arguably is in the OHL, right? <laughs> Where he was one of the 10 best. <laughs> can I get know, Dennis Chalowski's first month of 2018? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just that. So here's here's an area, right? So we're talking about three great centers now. You've got Franz Nielsen, you've got Valtteri Fopel, you got Dylan yeah. Larkin. Is this team better than present Winnipeg? No, probably not. Yeah. That's a very good point. Right? I mean, this is a very similar. Now, granted, present-day Winnipeg is 17-8-2, and they're second in their division. uh, But they're not better than that team. And so then you start to, like, peck your way down. Yes, they have good center depth, but I don't know that there's enough pieces here for me to be very excited about how good that team would be. I do think they would be a playoff team, but I think they'd be an average playoff team. You know, they wouldn't be that far off of like a, uh, like a Rangers or a somewhere between Rangers and Philly, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think Philly's even a good comparison there. And Philly's fifth in the East right now, 13, nine and three. So, you know, I think Philly would be a similar talent team. Yeah. All right. That's a good one. Uh, I like that question from, from Lassie. Um, Dave, this one is going to be just complete you question. What is the best bourbon food? Uh, I think it's got to be uh bourbon covered or bourbon chocolate balls. I mean, if you can get the right bourbon infused in there, that's a that's going to be the key. Okay. Uh, Brandon Johnson, in a trade, would you prioritize picks in this year's draft in hopes that the lack of scouting opportunities increases the chance of hitting with? some of the later round picks. Uh, I would prioritize picks in 2022 and 2023, um, given the overall talent there and the variance between teams not having a good assessment of where they're actually going. Um, you know, we we talk about how the, the lack of um, scouting may be a hindrance, but I also think it's a uniform hindrance. I don't think any team has consistently demonstrated the ability to be better than one another at identifying talent. So you're basically just getting more shots at the dartboard which is nice but i'd rather have more shots uh in the dartboard in 2022 and 2023 one thing i'd say about that though is if we're talking about like second and third round picks what i think this draft lacks is at the very top and that's where the 22 and 23 drafts shine is at the very top if we're talking about second third round picks you might be able to kind of make a pretty compelling argument that ultimately the depth areas of drafts probably don't stretch that deep and it's what what makes a great draft is great talent at the top and so from that standpoint i think you could make a pretty good case to what to what i think is dave is saying um and that's you know loading up now because maybe you have a chance for some unseen talent to slip where you know the 2022 draft does seem like it's going to have some really high-end talent at the top but it might not actually be any deeper than this year yeah, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that in, in really in any given year, I mean, you're talking about maybe 50 players make right. the make make the league. And uh, a lot of them go in the top two rounds, but some of them always go in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's uh, there. there's not necessarily a uniform distribution. Your best chance to land them, obviously, is first and second rounds. And you're, obviously, your best chance to land the – the best players are in the first and second round, but there's always guys that that slip and fall and, and get through the cracks. And so, you know, getting more picks this year gives you more opportunities uh, to, to land them. But question is, can you actually identify them 
you know, and, and, and pick them at the right spot. Yeah. All right. And then um, Zeebs asks, what would the return for Bernier need to be to justify not re-signing him? In other words, you know, if, if you assume that Bernier has been really good and good enough to like kind of earn a contract extension from the Red Wings, what does some other GM have to tell you on the phone when he calls you between now and April 12th to go, all right, we'll have to take our chances at free agency to try and get him back? Yeah, I mean, as much as I talk about um, goaltending kind of being a position that can easily be addressed in free agency, Bernier is a guy who has demonstrated the ability to play at a high level behind this team. And, you know, while the statistics have sort of suggested that you goaltenders are relatively replaceable and you can sort of interchange them um, in that average to above average tier, uh, I do wonder if there is something that's missed in that analysis. And and particularly, there was a great article. I can't remember, you know, which goalie scout was talking about this. So apologies for not being able to quote it appropriately. Uh, but talking about how a goalie controls their rebounds, how a goalie learns to redirect pucks and which pucks should be directed to which areas of the ice should be supported by their defense. And, you know, the depth they play in their crease uh, is impacted by what the defensive scheme and structure is like. And so perhaps there are certain goalies that are going to play better in certain systems. <clears throat> and maybe that's the case with Jonathan Bernier. Maybe he's a guy that just needed whatever Detroit does for him to really bring out the best of his game. And so in, if you've got a nice match there and he's not expensive, then I'd certainly keep him here. Did you take a third round pick? Uh, no. You should take a second round pick straight up. Uh, 2022 second. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, Acting Secretary Malarkey, you're in charge of hockey on ESPN, uh, which I have not been uh, asked to do, just for uh, full disclosure. What does your broadcast look like? Who do you have in the studio and who do you have in the booths? Uh, Well, I grew up on ESPN hockey. So the, the theme song is now blaring as, as we're going along here. Um, so for me, the announcer, the lead announcer has to be Gary Thorne. I mean, every memorable hockey call that has ever existed from the 90s and early 2000s is by Gary Thorne. And so if he is interested, I am absolutely having him on the broadcast team. I thought Bill Clement was a great partner for him, but I think Bill Clement is officially retired. Um, and so, you know, you'd have to kind of think through uh, some of the color analysts across the league and, and, and who would be great here. Um, you know, Razor, who does the uh, Dallas uh, games, I think is a great uh, color guy. I think he's done a, a really nice, I think Daryl Razor is his first name, if I remember right. Um, he He's an excellent color guy. I think AJ Malesko is a great uh, color analyst as well. So she'd be another awesome person to have in the booth. Um, and then in the studio, I think Steve Levy's got to run that just to, again, give me my old timey feel there. Um, and Kevin Weeks, I think has done a nice job as well. So he'd be another interesting guy to have in the booth there. And, you know, potentially you can get Cami Granato to, or not Cami uh, Granato, um, Haley Wickenheiser or either one of those, if they, you know, can abandon some team duties and, and pitch in a little bit. I don't know if either one of them are allowed to do that, but I always appreciated, you know, hearing from them. So uh, I think that'd round out kind of an interesting broadcast team. I really like all of that. Can I add one 
crazy galaxy brain one. Yes. I want to, if I'm in charge of ESPN, I am luring Bobby Ryan into retirement by paying him more than the $1 million NHL teams are paying him to play to be one of my studio analysts. He is so, so like, so good in interviews. I imagine that would translate perfectly to TV. He's thoughtful. He's personable. Uh, you look at what Kevin BX is like on Hockey Night in Canada, and they don't quite necessarily have like the same. I don't, I don't see they'd be like the exact same profile, but I like having that really recently retired player um, in the studio giving analysis who has played with some of these guys, played against a lot of these guys, and just brings a, a really fun dynamic to the broadcast. So if I'm in charge of ESPN, I'm luring Bobby Ryan into retirement to join the studio audience with more than a million dollar contract. That would be, that'd be a lot of fun in the studio because unfortunately, you know, as, as much as I would like you know, Cammy Granato and Haley Wickenheiser in there just as for how thoughtful they are, you know, their their team roles are certainly going to preclude them from participating as much as I would like that. So, you know, Bobby Ryan would be another fun guy to have in there. I think Cassie Campbell Pascal is another great uh, analyst yeah, in there as well. Sure. So I think you could really put together a, a pretty incredible team. You know, if you re- when when you said you had a galaxy brain idea, I thought you were going to say Stephen A. Smith. And well, then... What I actually did consider saying is Snoop Dogg, who has done some color for games <laughs> for the LA Kings, a blast. Yes. Yeah, his his, his color for the LA Kings was hilarious, hilarious, absolutely yeah. but, hilarious. But the one problem that they would run into with it is um, there's a lot of kind of traditionalists who I, I think would not uh, uh, like ha- be be open to having as much fun as that is. You know so what I mean? here's here's the thing, right? What has tradition got you? It's got you the fourth or fifth rated major sport, right? Great point, right? See, Stephen A. Smith, I saw a lot of people pushing back against him commenting that video about was hockey. So fun. But yeah. his video was hilarious and his reach is amazing. He is a guy that gets people to talk about the sport. Yeah. So to me, screw tradition. Like, as I say this, as I just said, I want Gary Thorne and Steve Levy in the booth because I think both those guys did a great job in, in, in yeah. bringing a lot of fans in. But you have to mix the other part of the, the broadcast team with. Guys and girls who buck tradition, like, you know, give me Stephen A. Smith, who is in there. Uh, you know, I bet I bet Doris Burke could call a hockey game. I would listen to Doris Burke talk about anything. Yeah. I bet you could get her to call a hockey game as a uh, color analyst, and she would do a fantastic job. So, you know, to me, screw tradition. Like, let's get some different blood in there and, and get some people just talking about the sport. Yeah. The other the other one I wanted to add, uh, she's already with ESPN, so I'm sure she will be part of the coverage. And that's Emily Kaplan, who yes. I think is one of the best hockey journalists working right now. She's also very captivating. The video she narrated um, for ESPN as a part of, um, as I always forget, outside the was it outside the lines? I can't remember. Yep. Right now, of course, isn't put on the spot. But yeah, she's also very captivating to listen to. Yep. All right. And then we're going to close on this one because we're running the time uh, like crazy right now. Adam is Aguirre. You're going to love this one. SAT analogy. Rebuilding Colorado is to Matt Duchesne as current Red Wings are to which player? Oh, you're going to love my answer. It's Philip Peronic. Okay. Guy perceived to be better than he actually is and could net you some reasonable amount of assets. I thought you were going to go with one of Mantha or Bertuzzi. No, because Mantha's actually good, and Bertuzzi's uh, providing some much-needed scoring this year. Tyler Bertuzzi would have been my answer if he asked me this question last year. Now I'm going to hit pause because I want to see some more games from him. Philip Peronic's my answer. 
I thought it was going to be one of those guys because those are the guys who I think, uh, you know, they're kind of on that older edge of that thing that, that Duchesne would have kind of aged out of Colorado's, you know, they're right now they're in their window and you're seeing Duchesne start to decline. So I thought that was, was going to be where you were going to go with that, but that's an interesting one. I mean, I don't think that's a bad, you know, I, I think Horonic is better than you think he is. And that's just a fact of the show that we constantly have to navigate around. Uh, but I don't think it's the worst. Uh, like if, if someone fell in love with Philip Horonic and they wanted to trade him, I don't think that's like unjustifiable. Yeah. I mean, I think he certainly nets you less than what you got with Matt Duchesne. I mean, that's going to be abundantly clear, but in terms of like the phenotype of the player that I think their perception is maybe a little greater than what they actually are. I think he maybe fits that the best. Leading the team in scoring right now, despite uh, having some pretty rough shot luck. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's impressive. It's impressive that he has managed to rack up all of these secondary assists. <laughs> Cutting backhand remark. We'll close on that. All right, everybody. Uh, we will uh, be back at you later this week. Remnings have another game against... The Lightning, and then they're going to have a series against who, who are they playing? Dallas? Yep, Dallas is next. Yep. And of course, March Madness is here. And starting on Tuesday, March 16th, the Athletics College basketball crew brings you The Ding You, presented by BetMGM. We'll cover all the action, both on the court and at the sports book, grabbing insight from the Athletics College basketball writers and picking the brain of BetMGM's top bookmakers. Tournament preview show is Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Daily Ding feed and streaming on YouTube. We'll talk to you on Wednesday.